please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. As we continue in our series, here comes the incredible kingdom of God. And today we're going to get into part two of using the keys of the kingdom. Using the keys of the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, after you had resurrected, you appeared to your disciples. And one of the things you did was that you opened up their minds that they might understand the word of God. At that time, Lord, all they had was what we call the Old Testament. And all through the Old Testament, Jesus, you were present. You were spoken of and prophesied about and you open up their minds so that they could see scriptures that they had seen before, but never really had divine revelation and insight into them until you opened their minds. God, today we're going to read some familiar passages, things that we know and things that we believe. But if you don't open up our mind and show us, even as the Father showed Peter, who you were, Lord, we will not have comprehension. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Do what you do. Glorify Jesus as you lead us into all truth. Lord, and with this information, with this knowledge today, we pray that it would begin, be the beginning of a transformation, of a new way of thinking and thus a new way of living. Thank you, O oh God. We love you so much. And we bless you for loving us first and demonstrating love by going all the way to Calvary to set us free from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. We glorify you as the risen Lord, and we don't have to wait for Easter to do that. We thank you, Lord, that you are alive. We bless you for how you've moved in our midst thus far. Lord, continue to move now. For we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Using the keys of the kingdom, part two. What I'm preaching today as it pertains to using the keys of the kingdom, I must confess to you, I'm still learning. As a pastor, but more so as a believer in Jesus who's been walking with Jesus since 1984. There's still so much about the kingdom of God that I don't understand. And so I'm in process. And if you're still in process, if you're still learning, I invite you to learn with me this morning. Because I guarantee you're going to hear some things this morning you may have never heard before. I may even challenge some mindsets and belief systems that you've always recited, but it wasn't necessarily right. So I hope that you'll be open as I strive to be open because we're all still learning. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is a student of the master. And none of us know everything. So Lord, we are teachable today 
have your way. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. We embarked on this passage last week. We're going to get into it again today. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So let's stop right there and pause for a moment. Jesus takes his disciples into this region, which is north of Galilee. And he asked them a very specific and poignant question, and that is, what is the word on the streets about me? Now, before we even go into the following verses, we got to stop and even just try to dive into the geographical context. Why Caesarea Philippi? Why this particular place that I've had the privilege of visiting twice when my wife and I went to Israel. In this place, Caesarea Philippi hosts within it a 9,200-foot mountain called Mount Hermon. As a result of this grand mountain, it is a place where travel is somewhat controlled by the political regime that's in power. What I mean by that is, because of the monstrosity of this mountain, travel to and through the region is controlled. Meaning that if you want to go further north into Europe, or you want to go down south into Africa, that area was a, a path, if you will, of travel. And in that day and age, and even in this time, those who control key channels and travel passageways usually exercise great power over those places in terms of who can get by and who cannot get by. Before the Romans occupied this area, it was occupied by the Greeks. And so to be in Caesarea Philippi, it was a place of political control. Caesarea Philippi is named after Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. Because Herod the Great, who was the father of Herod Philip, he built a temple there, a marble temple, in order to honor Caesar Augustus. And in those days, the Caesars were looked at as if they were gods in the flesh. And they required the worship of their people, which is why being a Christian ran countercultural to the Roman Empire because Christians claimed Jesus as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. And claiming Jesus as Lord could get you persecuted, even killed by the state. And so therefore, there was this marble temple there to Caesar Augustus. And when Herod Philip inherited the region from his father, Herod the Great, he expanded the area and so much so that he put his name on the title of the city, Caesarea Philippi. So he put his name there because, again, he knew that it was a powerful area because of this mountain and the travel, the channel in which people would go back and forth on. And so he was 
put his name there, and his uh, uh, predecessor there, uh, Caesar Augustus, had a temple. But not only that, Caesarea was a place of idolatry. Because in addition to worshiping Caesar, in that area, the Greeks also worshiped a god by the name of Pan. Pan. If you watch the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, you've seen images that resemble Pan. Pan would have a man's face and torso, but goat ears. And Pan, this god, would also have the hind parts of a goat and the feet of a goat. So it was part goat, part man, and Pan was the god of that area in Caesarea Philippi. And in terms of Greek thought, Greek religion, Greek mythology, they believed that Pan was the god of fertility. Uh, Pan would bless crops and Pan would bless uh, um, cattle. Uh, Pan would also bless sexuality. And so the Greeks worshiped this god, small g, named Pan. And so it's in this area that Jesus says, I, I, I want to know who do the people out there say I am, and I want to know who my disciples say I am. But here's another thing about this area, Caesarea Philippi, and this mountain called Mount Hermon. At the base of the mountain was a large cave. And the Romans believed that this cave was the entrance into what is known as Hades. Hades was the Greek mythological place where dead people went. Hades was also the name of the Greek god of death, the god who controlled the underworld. And so in that area, during the time of Jesus, people believed that that was the entrance way into Hades, or what would become known in Christian thought as hell. You see, in the Old Testament, they call the place where spirits would go Sheol. And so there was a belief in Hebrew understanding as well as in Gentile or Greek understanding that the soul lived on after death. And so Jesus is in this place where there's strong political control and great idolatry, but also this area that folks believe hell, Hades, the gates are right here. So this is the context that he says, I, I just want to know who do people say that I am? So let's go on over down to verse 14. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So, so they're saying, Jesus, the way that you preach repentance, it reminds people of John the Baptist. The way you weep and have a heart for people reminds them of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Uh, the way you perform miracles reminds them of Elijah and even some of the other prophets. And, and so they're, they're saying, Jesus, uh, folks see you as a prophet. Okay, okay. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Because what he wants to know 
I believe is the same thing he wants to know with us today. Because in the world, people don't mind seeing Jesus as a prophet. Uh, Y'all going to help me today? Uh, Various religions don't mind saying that he is a prophet like John the Baptist or like Jeremiah, uh, like Elijah. And if you go into some communities and talk to some people of the nation of Islam, they'll say that Jesus is a prophet, but he's a prophet less than the prophet Muhammad. So they don't mind him being a prophet, but then we got to ask now, prophets are people, prophetesses were people who spoke the word of God. They prophesied, they told things about the future. And the thing that determined whether or not they were a true prophet or a false prophet is whether or not what they said came to pass. So if you say Jesus is a prophet, what kind of prophet are you talking about? A true prophet or a false prophet? Because he said some things about himself that spoke to his nature and his character to say that he was above any and all who carried the mantle of prophet. Yeah, he was a prophet, but he was so much more. Now, the world out there will say he's a prophet, but what does the church say about Jesus Christ? Do we say that he's just like all the others, or do we say that the others can't hold a candle to him? Do we say that uh, the others are beneath him, including Muhammad and Buddha and Krishna, whoever you want to call a prophet, that Jesus, it's at his name that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to profess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So does the church know this about who we claim as our Messiah? Or have we placed him on a plane along with everybody else? No, 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 no. Jesus stands head and shoulders above any and, any, any and everyone else who names the name of prophet. But I thank God for Simon Peter because in verse 16, after Jesus asked the 12, okay, what do y'all say? Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jesus answered and said, to, no, let me go back to 16. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you are more than a prophet. You are the Christ. The Christ means Messiah. It means deliverer. It means the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit, the one who is sent forth by God to deliver the people. Now, in Jesus' day and time, the Jews, by and large, miss the Messiahship of Jesus because they were looking first and foremost to a political deliverance more than a spiritual deliverance. And in this day and time, we look to Jesus as a spiritual deliverer, but we forget that he's coming back to rule the nations, and he's going to set up his throne, David's throne, in Jerusalem on which he will sit. So the first time he came as a lamb to die, but the second time he comes, he's coming as a lion to rule. The Jews missed it because they were looking, they had been oppressed for so long that they were looking first and foremost for political, social ethnic deliverance more than the one who was wounded for their transgressions and was bruised for their iniquities. But I can't fault them because being a descendant of oppressed people and still walking in levels of oppression, 
I'm looking for my master to deliver and change this world. I mean, man, listen, listen, listen. We can't keep getting used to mass shootings. That was another mass shooting. What else is going on? No, no, we can't normalize evil and death and atrocities. And we're saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and set this stuff right. Put it in the right order. So we're crying out, but as a descendant of oppressed people, I want a Jesus who not only cares about my soul, but cares about my place in society. And so the Jews, yeah, 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 yeah. Peter says, you are the Messiah we've been waiting on. Now I'll hit this next week. Even though they saw Jesus die on the cross and resurrect from the grave and ascend, the Jews, the, the inner circle, still asked him in Acts chapter 1, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So again, they're looking for political prominence. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And Jesus is going to say to them, uh, it's not up to you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has at his disposal. But what I need for y'all to do right now is be witnesses for me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. You do what you do, and I'll do what I do. Get involved expanding God's diverse kingdom, and you ain't got to worry about me setting up my national kingdom in Israel. So, 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 it's real. But not only did he say you're the Christ, he said you're the son of the living God. Now watch this now. In that time, if you were to say you were the son of God, you were saying that you were of the same essence as God, making you God. So, so when Jesus would say he was the son of God, people considered that blasphemy. And that was one of the reasons they sought to crucify him because he claimed that God was his father, making himself equal to God. So that terminology, son of God, doesn't mean that there was a mother God who birthed Jesus. No, son of God speaks of the fact that he is of the same essence, character as God the Father. For as God the Father is eternal, the son of God is also eternal. So Peter is saying, you are more than a prophet. You are God in the flesh. You are the son of the living God, and you are God the Son. You are deity incarnate. Now, even as he's saying that, he doesn't really understand what he's saying. Just like when we say these things, we don't really understand what we're saying. Because Jesus is going to say to him, uh, uh, Simon, bless you, uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, God gave you that insight about me. But then a little bit later, He's going to try to tell God in the flesh what he couldn't do. Uh, when Jesus said, I got to die in Jerusalem, Peter going to pull him aside and rebuke the son of God. And said, that can't happen to you. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men and not the things of God. So what's the point? He went from being on point to falling off in a matter of seconds. I, I mean, he got revelation from God, and then the next minute he's speaking stuff that comes from the pits of hell. Because if he had really understood what he just said, he wouldn't have tried to rebuke Jesus, and he wouldn't have been classified as speaking satanic thoughts. So in other words, Peter is in process. 
just like you and I are in process. But we claim by faith right now to the best of our understanding that Jesus is Messiah and Jesus is God. I believe that I will die for that. I won't die for the color of the carpets. I won't die on whether or not you believe women should be pastors or not. I have positions. I believe women should preach, all that kind of stuff. But there are people, man, who, who are willing to fight and die over denominationalism. But no, 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 no. If you say that Jesus is not the Christ, if you say that he's not the son of God, and you claim to be a Christian, we're going to have some fellowship problems. I'll die for that because he died for me. And it may come a time where here in America, it may be put to the test. Because in other parts around the world, before people, Christians, are put to death, they're asked to recant on their profession of faith on whether or not they believe Jesus is the Son of God. And for those who don't recant on that, they are decapitated, they are shot. It could become that. Lord, give us strength. But then we go on here. In verse 18, after Peter makes this revelation, Jesus says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. What's the rock? The church has debated this for thousands of years. What's the rock? Is the rock Peter? Making Peter the head of this church that Jesus would build, i.e. the first pope of the Catholic Church. And every pope since then is the head of the church or has the authority, the keys of the church that Jesus is going to build the church on a man. Now, I don't believe that's the best interpretation. I believe the rock is the revelation that that Peter spoke concerning Jesus, that he's the Messiah and the son of the living God. What does that mean? that the church is built on Jesus and he uses men and women in the process of seeing his church go forward, but he is the cornerstone of the church and not a human being. So the rock is Christ himself. And if we were to go over to Isaiah 44 and over into 1 Corinthians, we would see that the rock is Christ himself. So the rock is Jesus, the revelation that he's Messiah, son of God. And he says, I'm going to build my church on this rock because you can only build on a sturdy foundation. It's not wise to build on sand, Jesus preached in Matthew 7. But if you're going to build a house, build it on the rock. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on myself. And then he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So when he mentions his church, he mentions Hades or he mentions hell which means that church is supposed to be more than I'm coming to get my praise and my shout on. I'm coming to get my blessing. I'm coming to get my word. Church is a a whole lot more than that. And as we said last week, this word church, ecclesia, comes from a term in the Greek culture that speaks of called out assembly or a group of people who have been given power to govern. So the church has legal authority to govern in the earth. And when he mentions the church, he mentions hell. And Jesus says, right here in Caesarea Philippi, where people believe is the entrance into hell, we're going to build my church right here. 
In other words, wherever hell is operating, this is where the church will be planted. But why is it that when so many church planters want to plant a church, they do research and they find out, you know, what the socioeconomic makeup is of this county, of this suburb, in order to go and plant their churches. But Jesus said, look, if you're going to build my church, you ought to be planting it where hell is operating most. Oh, I didn't learn none of this in seminary. No, uh -uh, no, no. Because a lot of times we're looking for the easy way out. And Jesus said, where it's the hottest and the darkest and the evilest, that's where the church ought to be. Why? Because hell has these gates. So when he's saying this, you got to envision the fact that hell is a gated community. We know heaven is a gated community. Four gates to the east, four gates to the north. We, we, we sing and celebrate that, but hell has a gated community. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about how Satan has a kingdom. And Satan's demons are smart enough not to fight against each other within Satan's kingdom because the kingdom divided against itself with what? It will fall. So demons work together in Satan's kingdom. And these gates have locks. They have doors. Behind the gates are spiritual prisoners, people who are lost. I wish I had time to really get into this, but I got to keep going. Lost people, you and I used to be behind those gates in the kingdom of darkness until we were translated and brought out to the kingdom of light, the marvelous light of Jesus. We shifted kingdoms when we became born again. But right now, lost people, because the spirit of Satan, Ephesians 2, 2, is working in the sons of disobedience. They're behind those gates and they don't know that they're bound. But the Messiah and those who belong to him have been anointed with the spirit of God to preach the gospel to the poor and to set at liberty the captives so that people can come out from behind that kingdom and come into God's kingdom. We talked about that last week. The keys of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to set people free. So when you see gates, you see a kingdom, you see locks. But he also says something here that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Prevail means to move forward. To prevail means to have victory. To prevail means to advance. So these gates that hell has is advancing. It's taking territory. It's seeking to win. And the only entity on earth that can stop the advancement of this invisible kingdom of evil is this church that he begins right here. And he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Verse 19. I'm giving you those of you who are in the called out assembly, Christians, believers, followers of Jesus. You are in this kingdom. You are in the church. I'm giving y'all the keys of the kingdom. What are those keys for? To deal with those locks on those gates with hell. 
So I'm going to give you keys. As we've been saying, keys signify authority. And last week we saw that he gave us the key to make disciples. He also gave us the key to make a difference. And today, key number three on God's divine kingdom key ring is the key to make demons flee. The key to make demons flee. Now, some of us are like, now, I, I didn't sign up for all of that. Well, <laughs> just like when they recruit a lot of them dudes to get in the army back in the day, they didn't tell them that they were going to be baptized right in the midst of fire, that they were going to go to war, they were going to go fight. They were going to leave basic training and go fight. But, but we've signed up. We sing. We're in the army now, the Lord's army now. We're soldiers. Okay. Well, we got to understand our authority and our weaponry, and we got to understand the fight that we're in. Now, on Wednesday night for Bible study, plug, 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 come to Bible study because we will cover key four and five in Bible study, okay? Uh, Because when we see these keys being utilized here in Matthew chapter 16, when he inaugurates the church, the only other time Jesus talks about the church is in Matthew chapter 18. He uses the same language that we're about to see in a minute of binding and loosing. He uses it here. I'll read it in a moment. Binding and loosing. But then in Matthew 18, he talks about binding and loosing in the context of the church. What we see going on in 16, chapter 16, is different from what's going on in chapter 18. What's going on here in chapter 16 involves spiritual wickedness or demonic influence. What's going on in chapter 18 involves binding and loosing out of fellowship Christians. That's why you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss. You don't want to miss. Come out Wednesday. Uh, Get on the app tonight, tomorrow. Sign up so we can feed you. And come on out and let's study the word together because this stuff is heavy. But let me go back to verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven because we got to deal with these gates and locks of hell. And whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven. Heaven is going to back you up when you do things that are in accord and in alignment with the agenda of God. You've got heaven behind you, heaven with you, heaven before you when you apply and use these keys to bind or to lock things up. Because in order to keep those gates from prevailing, from advancing, We got to bind them. We got to lock them. But then he says, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. God is going to back us up from heaven when we loose. And mainly the loosing is preaching the gospel so that the lost can be freed in Jesus. So when you see loose, see freedom. When you see loose, see unlocking. But not only that, The binding is going to deal with binding demons and loosing people from demonic possession and even oppression. Oh, Lord. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus was not playing and neither should we be playing. So Jesus empowers us because that's what a key is. It's authority. It's granted authority. He's empowered us to have authority 
over demons. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power, which means authority, over what? Unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. I remind you and I remind myself that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So part of their going out was not only to preach the gospel, but to touch hurting people who were diseased and even oppressed and possessed with evil spirits. It was a power they did not have in and of themselves. It was a power that Jesus gave to them. So as the brothers put this slide up, I want you to see this hierarchy within the demonic realm. Because within a kingdom, there's hierarchy. There's order even within the demonic realm. And so as far as level one hierarchy within the demonic realm, believers are authorized by God to cast out demons, also known as unclean spirits and evil spirits. So this is just not reserved for the apostolic church or the holiness church but for all who are in the church of Jesus Christ. Demons, unclean spirits, and evil spirits, those spirits who dwell in unbelievers, Christians, the church has been given authority over them. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is in Philippi. And he's there ministering, and there's a, a girl who has a demon on her or in her. And she's able to tell or, or, or quote-unquote, prophesy the future. And the people who owned her made a lot of money off of her. And Paul is going through the area, and she keeps saying, these are servants of the Most High God. These are servants of the Most High God. And the Bible says after that went on for a few days, Paul got kicked off and turned around and said, come out of her in the name of or the authority of Jesus Christ. And that spirit came out of her. He, bind, he bound it, which means he stopped it. He locked it up and he cast it out, which meant he also loosed it. And in the binding and the loosing of the spirit, he was able to loose the girl. So a lot of stuff happened in that moment, which led Paul to get thrown in jail. And he and Silas started singing at midnight. God caused the prison to rock, the doors open, and then the prison guard uh, ended up getting saved. But he took authority and cast out this evil spirit, this demon. Okay, somebody said, man, he was an apostle. Can I do that? <laughs> yes, you can. Because this is the lowest level of demonic activity. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. Verse 49, now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. In other words, he's he not in our group. He don't go to our church. He's not one of the 12, and he out there doing work, casting out demons. 
But Jesus said to him, verse 50, do not forbid him. For he who is not against us is on our side. So apparently God started working in someone else without getting the permission or the approval of the 12 and empowered someone else to do the work of the kingdom of God. So there's some other folk casting out demons. And again, this is such a deep topic. I can't hit it all today. But come to Bible study. We'll dig a little deeper and take questions. But now let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Because we got to move from level 1. I, I gotta, we got to move from level 1. we got to go to what I would call level 2. And this is found in Ephesians 6 verse 12 when Paul is telling the church at Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God to take your stand against the wiles of the devil. He said in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So this is what I would call hierarchy level two within the demonic realm. Believers are empowered by God to wrestle with, stand against, and resist. And according to what the apostle gave, there's a ranking here. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, and then ultimately, Satan who is also known as the devil, the father of lies, Beelzebub, Lucifer, the dragon, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. What's going on here is that there's a pecking order in the realm of demonic activity where it builds on top of one another, leading ultimately up, or should I say down, to Satan. Now, here's what we got to remind ourselves. Christians have not been given level two authority to cast out those entities. We've been given authority to deal with level one, demons as they indwell people. But these particular demons are operating in realms, in heavenly places, over nations, if you were to go to the book of Daniel. I'm saying this because it sounds really spiritual to say, devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. That sounds spiritual, but it's not biblical. It sounds good, sounds deep, but it's not logical yet alone biblical, because if we're over here binding the devil at Strong Tower, and up at Bethel, they're binding the devil, and then over here at St. Bartholomew, they're binding the devil, why is the devil still running around causing so much havoc? <laughs> and folk been trying to bind him for 2,000 years. Because we have not been authorized to bind the devil or to deal with these demons on steroids operating in heavenly places. 
No, we're not called to bind them. No, we're not called to cast them out. What are we called to do? According to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, he's saying you need to take your stand against them. And having done all to what? Wait a minute, Strong Tower. Having done all to what? Stand. Stand with your feet girded in the gospel of peace and the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Stand and praying in the spirit. Now, the one who could have bound the devil in the upper room was Jesus. When he said, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Jesus did not say, but I bound him and cast him in outer darkness. He didn't do that. He said, but I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Go through this spiritual warfare. Learn from it. Be humbled by it. Come back and strengthen your brothers and show them how to stand. Because one of the reasons you fell was because of your pride. Y'all ain't hearing me. No, I'll never deny you. They'll all fall away. He was speaking in his own strength and in his flesh. Jesus like, oh yeah? Let a man who thinks he's standing take heed lest he fall. Satan is coming for you. Why? Because he comes for leaders. He's coming for people who are making dents on the gates of hell. But Jesus said, I'm going to pray for you. But so often we just want to rebuke and cast out. But Paul is saying, stand. Somebody's going through a spiritual war. And if you're not in one right now, it's coming. Stand. Stand your ground. The Bible goes on to let us know that when people talk about Satan, I rebuke you. No, no, you're, you're not authorized to do that either. Let me go to Jude. Let me go to Jude verse 8. Jude verse 8. We, listen, we do not fear the demonic realm, but we're not to play with it either. We're not to make light of it. We're not to fool with it. Because there were some people in the book of Acts who saw what Paul was doing and thought that they could run around and do what he did. These seven sons of Sceva, I believe they were. They heard Paul taking authority over demons in the name of Jesus. So they went around and just started reciting these incantations. In other words, they were just doing witchcraft with the name of Jesus attached to it. And them demons said, wait a minute, now we know Paul. We know Jesus. Who are you? And the Bible says they jumped on those men and overpowered them. So it's not anything to play with, but we don't fear it either. Because we know who we stand with and who we stand behind. But in Jude chapter 8, listen to this. Likewise, uh, verse 8, excuse me. Likewise, also these dreamers or these false teachers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. And that's not speaking of like, you know, the mayor or the president. No, dignitaries that's on that list of these evil spirits. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, 
when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, stop. Come on, gather. Let's get this now. Michael, who's one of the strongest angels that God created, had enough sense to not try to deal with the devil in his own angelic power. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Not I rebuke you, but the Lord rebuke you. You can get a little bit more of this in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel had been praying and fasting for three weeks. And when Gabriel finally showed up, the angel Gabriel, only three angels are are technically named in the Bible. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Lucifer fell from heaven and became Satan. Took a third of the demons with him. So the other two-thirds are in heaven working for God and no doubt under the authority or leadership of Gabriel and Michael. So Gabriel and Michael, you know, they have this power, this authority, very similar to Lucifer. But dig this, in Daniel 10, Gabriel finally showed up after three weeks and says, "Uh, we heard you when you started praying, but I was detained by the prince of Persia or the spirit that was over this realm was detaining me. So I had to get some help from Michael in order to overcome so we could double team this spirit so that I could get to you and give you the word from God. So that was fighting going on in the spiritual realm. And Michael, the angel, he is not going to speak negatively of the devil. Verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. Again, it sounds good. It sounds deep, but it ain't right. And the devil, you are not going to bind the devil. The devil will not be bound until the latter day, Revelation chapter 20 when there's an angel that comes down from heaven with a key, Revelation 21, a key or authority to the bottomless pit. And he takes the devil and throws the devil, binds him, throws him into the bottomless pit where he's bound for a thousand years. That's when the devil is going to get bound. And that angel is only able to do it because the king of kings gives him the authority to do it. So when we're dealing with this kind of stuff, man, take your stand. Resist the enemy. And when you have to, say, Lord, rebuke the devil. In other words, turn him back. All right, let's go deeper. Zechariah chapter 3. When Joshua the high priest was standing before the Lord, Satan was there accusing him. And Jesus was there as well. There was God, there was Jesus, and there was Satan. Satan was accusing God's man, the high priest who had dirty clothes on because he was imperfect. And Jesus said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. But we're running around. I rebuke you. I rebuke you. I rebuke you. Now, God hasn't called us to rebuke, but he has called us to resist. 
going over to James chapter 4. I'm almost done. Come to Bible study. James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit, Lord Jesus, to God. That's where the power comes from. Submitting. God is not going to fill me if I'm full of myself. If I think I can do it in my own strength, God's going to let me do it. And I'm going to find out that I don't have any strength to live for him. I, Lord, I, Lord, I'm so sorry. I decrease that Christ may increase. Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. You gave me help. Let me use him today. But I cannot get the help of the Holy Spirit if I don't submit to God. God gives grace to the humble, but it's the proud he knows from afar off. You want power? Submit. You want power? Say that you don't have power. Paul, who had this kind of authority to deal with demons, level one. But in 2 Corinthians 12, man, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet him. He didn't bind it, didn't rebuke it, didn't cast it out. No, what did he do? He prayed three times that the Lord would remove this messenger of Satan. And God did not rebuke it. God did not remove it. But God said to him, my grace, my grace is enough for you because there's some things I want you to learn about me because you were already talking about you were almost getting prideful because all these revelations, you went to heaven in the spirit, but in the abundance of all this stuff, God sent this thorn, this messenger of Satan to buffet you, to keep you humble. And that's when the Lord said, when you're weak, that's when you're strong. My spirit will rest on you when you submit yourself to me and I'll give you the power to stand and having done everything to stand. That's spiritual warfare right there. Oh my God. And then the Bible says in verse seven, resist the devil and he'll flee. Resist. Take your stand. Resist. I'm standing. These gospel shoes of peace is nothing but Jesus Christ because he is my peace. And without him, there is no gospel. I'm standing in the truth of who God is and what God did for me. I'm standing on Jesus. I'm standing on the word. And I'm going to resist this attack that's coming against me. The Heisman Trophy is given to the best college uh, athlete in football. And it's a trophy of a football player running and stiff arming. When you think about resisting, think about, I'm stiff arming. I'm standing in the authority of Jesus. I'm resisting this. I'm not rebuking it. I'm not casting it out. I'm resisting it in the authority of Jesus, and I'm standing on the word of God. I'm resisting this attack that's coming against my family in Jesus' name. Okay, that's not enough. First Peter chapter 5. Verse 8, be sober. Be vigilant, or as Dr. Jewel would say, stay woke. Stay on alert, because your adversary, the white man, no, your adversary, the black man, no, your adversary, the government, no, 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 your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion,
lion seeking whom he may devour. He devours people who are anxious, who do not cast their cares on the Lord. He devours you when you're worrying and you're consumed with anxiety. You're trying to fix your own world. He's devouring you. He's looking for Christians who are worrying. He can't handle Christians who have faith. He says in verse 9, resist him. Don't rebuke him. Don't try to cast him out. Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. We overcome by the blood of the lamb. I'm resisting this attack. And what happens? What happens here? Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. Perfect. Establish, strengthen, and settle you. Because God is after spiritual growth. Not always spiritual uh, alleviation from suffering. He wants that three Hebrew boy faith in us. Yeah, the God I serve is able to deliver me. But if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down to this. I'll just burn up, but I'm not bowing down to this. Oh, he can get me out. But if he chooses not to get me out, I trust him and his plan. Now, that's faith. If he doesn't remove this cancer from my body, I'm not bowing down to discouragement, depression, or thinking that God has left me or forsaken me. No, no, no. He said he would heal me. He's either going to heal me here or he's going to heal me there. And if he heals me here, he's still got to heal me there. So he's going to heal me. And I'm standing on that. That's resisting the lies of the devil. That's picking up the shield of faith to quench his fiery missile, lying to you, trying to contaminate your mind with negative thoughts and fearful thoughts. But no, I'm taking the shield of faith and I'm standing my ground. I'm resisting the lies of the enemy with the truth of the word of God. And I'm going to believe what God says about me. And I have the victory. I've already overcome. And he is able to do it here and do it now. Jesus has given us heaven's keys to bind and to loose hell's gates. With this particular key, we've been given authority because keys equal authority. And spiritual authority is a lot like legal authority. For the lawyers in here, help me out. Spiritual authority is a lot like legal authority. And in many respects, legal authority is greater than physical power. You see, demons constitutionally are stronger than us. Demons have supernatural strength. So on one hand, they're physically stronger, but, but we have legal or spiritual authority over an entity as far as a demon to bind it, to cast it out. We have authority over it, even though it's stronger than us. And we have authority to resist these level two demonic entities, including Satan, because the legal authority has been given to us. Tomorrow when you take your kids to school, look for the person that is directing traffic. 
Usually, it's a little old person. They retire, try to make a few dollars on the side. They have a yellow jacket on, some orange in it, a hat, might even have some gloves on. Probably weigh a buck oh five. But when they stand out in the middle of that street, they got something called authority. Y'all ain't hearing me. They, they, they got something called authority. So although the cars weigh a whole lot more and have a whole lot more authority, once they put that hand out, you better slow down and you better stop because they have authority and backing them is the city or the county or the government. So if you break the law there, you can suffer consequences because you are disrespecting the one that was put in place to bring order to a potentially chaotic situation on the road. They have authority over things that are much more powerful than they are. And I am weak, but he is strong. Okay. Power of attorney. If you've ever had to deal with that, you recognize a power of attorney is a legal document in which one person designates another person to act on their behalf. This person is legally empowered and authorized to make decisions on all specified matters contained in the document. Power of attorney. Before my mother passed and went to glory, she had my brother, Wayne, become her power of attorney. So thank God she never slipped into a place where she didn't have her mental faculties. But before she went into the nursing homes and all those kind of things, she granted authority to my brother. And my nephew's wife, she was the person who was, a, who them people that put the stamp on the document? Notary. Notary. She was the notary. So for my family, they had uh, uh, my brother, and then there were witnesses who signed the document in the presence of the notary who authorized this document called the power of attorney. And when my brother would speak on behalf of my mother, it was as if my mother was doing the speaking because he was given the authority to speak on her behalf and to speak in her name. That's the power of attorney. Jesus has given us the power of attorney so that when we speak, it's as if he's speaking. As long as we're speaking in his name and based on the stuff that's in the document, we can't go make stuff up and think he's backing that up. No, we speak what, what, what he gave us the authority to speak and do. We have the power. But will we use the keys of the kingdom? Stop backing up. Stop cowering. Stop being afraid. Stand and having done all to stand. As a matter of fact, let's stand right now. Come on out to Bible study. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's pray. Father, you have given us power. That's beyond jumping and shouting, and that, that's great. But you've given us power, authority 
over the enemy, over the gates of hell. Lord, keep teaching us who we are and what we have so that we don't walk around talking in a hopeless manner the way people in the world talk. That we don't go around, Lord, thinking that it's up to us and we forget that it's always been up to you. Lord, keep using Strong Tower to use the keys of the kingdom to preach the gospel in word and in deed, to do great actions of mercy, as well as to deal with demons and to resist spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Matter of fact, God, we know that the deeper we go into being a kingdom-minded church, the more we're going to see adversity, the more we're going to see things that will appear to be unfair. And why is this happening? But Lord, they're indicators that we're right where we're supposed to be. Because Lord, I have a feeling that the enemy does not mess with people and churches who are not a threat to his gates. But God, we want to take everything you've called us to take and do everything you've called us to do for your honor and for your glory. Your word says in the book of Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. You haven't done it yet. You said you're going to do it soon. Because our feet, when we step in your name, those are your feet. Have your way. Help us to think on these things. Help us to study. And Lord, if you allow, let us come back to the church Wednesday to dive in a little bit deeper. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful day. God bless. Greet someone and remain thankful. Remain thankful. Remain thankful. Amen.